Hi, and welcome to June Millington and Friends, a podcast about music, why we do it, how we do it, the magical and spiritual aspects of writing and reaching deep inside ourselves. So dive deep with us. It's sponsored by the Institute for the Musical Arts. And if you'd like to support our efforts, please go to www.ima.org and click on any donate button. Thank you. Hi, Rebecca Hartka. Hi, Jim. I've so been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. And as I'm looking in your eyes, I know that one thing that we've talked about before that I'm fascinated by is the idea that you... Not in every instance, but you play on the page often when you do a concert Mm. with your cello and your fabulous self. You've got music in front of you, although I know that you've pretty much memorized all of it. And I come from the opposite side where, frankly, I didn't even hear out of one ear and I didn't know it. Mm. But everything I learned was pretty much off the page to, to start off. Yeah. And we were talking about how you have a doctorate and I had to create my own doctorate, you know, <laughs> yeah. because starting in the 60s, girls weren't even supposed to play what I was trying to on yeah. electric guitar. But I want to ask you, so let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. What is your first memory of cello? How do you even, like the first second I heard a guitar, I knew that was my salvation, that was my freedom. Mm. Do you remember hearing an instrument or the cello and knowing this is me? I have a story from my mom of the first time I heard the cello and it came on the radio and I said, mommy, the cello is crying. And I didn't say it like a sad thing, but it was just like, oh, wow. I want to play. I love that. I said, I want to play that. You know, see, we were also just talking about gender. I wonder if a little boy would have said at whatever age you said that, mommy, the cello's crying. That's not a put down. That's just our channels, I think, are open maybe to different frequencies. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, my supposedly, my mom says my brothers were way more emotional and way more intense emotionally than her daughter. Mm-hmm. She had five kids. I was very empathic, though, I would say from a very young age. I just really felt feelings and emotions very deeply. So this was on the radio. How old were you? I must have been five or something. What was playing on the radio? That was a cello. Was it a classical station? Was it NPR? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. You know, my parents were hippies, but they loved Ravel and they loved a huge range of, it was everything between Beatles and... <laughs> so they were hippies. Huh? Now I am intrigued by that. I am remembering starting a band with my sister in the age when hippies were, they created themselves. Right. And so... I remember the smell of patchouli (laughs) and the herb. Yeah, lots of herbs. Yeah, how the VW vans would look. Oh, we had one. We had an orange one. (laughs) Oh, you did? Yes. I remember that so distinctly. So you never remember not growing up with hippies? I mean, that was just the normal. And well, the first five years, actually, we were in Detroit. And then we, we moved to a community, a Waldorf community in Harlemville, New York. And the interesting story is they sort of moved there for the alternative living community. It's biodynamic farming and Waldorf education and all of these very open-minded, up to a point (laughs) Um, (laughs) open-minded. One of the big reasons they moved there is I was this kid with what what we'd call now PTSD. I'd had kind of a near-death situation at the age of 18 months. I fell, cut my eye got a staph infection. My eye went into golf ball size, went into my blood. So when my mom took me to the hospital, they were basically like, she's not going to make it, but please don't cry. This is not the space for it. And she's like, (gasps) you know, holding her. Yeah, of course. That was a whole thing that took a lot of my life to unlearn, but I was fine. I survived, but there was kind of trauma there from the experience that didn't show up for about six months. And then I started having these nightmares. The reason I bring this up is because music... Music is the thing, you know. No one knew what to do. My mom would try to wake me up. It would make the nightmares worse. I I was having night terrors, basically. Bears and tigers were eating me. And finally, she just was beside herself. And she heard about this homeopathic doctor. And he recommended rubbing some kind of copper on the soles. You know, something very esoteric. And my nightmares went away in three weeks. And I was way better and she'd get me more of this stuff. So that's how she got introduced to the community is through this doctor. It's so interesting because so many people 
have some sort of a portal that opens up after they're super sick. I'm even thinking of Tesla, who for like a year or something couldn't even have bedsheets touch Mm. his skin. I believe he was being opened up for something. And it might be similar for you that these terrors somehow prepared you for what was to come. Another channel. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very wise. I was sort of sunny for a while, but then in first grade, I just was not doing well. Everyone was worried. I was not eating. I was telling my mom I wanted to go up to the sky, that it was more beautiful up there. I just, I had this kind of wrecked body, you know, at seven, I had obviously so much PTSD in my body still that just didn't feel like a safe place. Way to help me incarnate. So they, they had me take baths with milk and honey and eggs as a way to try to like get me to get into my body and all these things. And and it it wasn't until the cello arrived that I realized I had a reason to be here. And I just remember just being so excited to take it out of the case. You and already knew. I you, knew. You heard the cello? Did you see anyone play? play well, it was cello something or? that we was introduced in the pedagogy. Okay. And so sort of waiting for it, you know. Yeah, yeah. There it was. And just the vibration on my chest and that end oh. pin into the ground oh. like a lightning rod. It's just like, I have a body, oh you know. My like my body's not so good, but this body's awesome. Oh, my God. You with know, the curves and yeah, everything. Just, We're just waiting for you to waiting, love it and yeah, hug it and everything. yeah. I love that. It just gave me, and suddenly I just transformed. I became Mm -hmm. this, my fellow students were like, oh my God, she's gifted. Wow, she's she's gifted. You you were just waiting. You were just waiting. It could contain everything you think. Mm -hmm. Music contains everything. Everything. So everything that got sucked into that tiny little body that was just like not ready for it, Uh the whole universe and death and the knowledge of that, you know, that a seven-year-old's not supposed to know about death. That's right. That's right. And the music could contain it all, even if I couldn't. I always think of music as like a stairway to heaven. Mm. Like it's a real... It's a real connection. It's visceral. Yeah. And it's totally, um, well, I'm going to say not of this world, but of course that's not the right, those aren't the yeah. right words. It's of both worlds. It's, it's of both worlds. That's right. Yeah. It's a bridge. It's, it's, it's a bridge. It's a bridge. And, you know, I feel like we're so lucky because somehow we get to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's total magic. It really is. Yeah. You know, the first second I heard a guitar, I was uh, 12 turning 13 and I, can remember exactly what I thought mm. when I heard it. It was at this Catholic girls' school where Gina and I just went for one year. Oh, it was at the end of the year, and I swear, I think it was an angel because I, I heard it. I got up out of my seat. Remember, this is a Catholic girls' school. You're not yeah. supposed to do anything without permission. Wow. You know those movies where everything stops and then somebody can walk out of the frame and do whatever and come back. Yeah. That's what happened because it was like I got up walked down the veranda uh, hallway and looked in a door and there was this girl facing a corner, the far corner, playing a guitar. And my first thought, my only thought was, why didn't anybody tell me? And then I kind of just disappeared and then I came to and she was playing. She never turned around to look at me. I never saw her again. <laughs> she was a little angel. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, totally. And then I went back. It was back. a visitation. It was like, here you yeah. go. Here's your instrument. Exactly. And you have the same exact <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, it's an imprint. It's like when you, it, you're meant to do it and then you know, it's here. I, I, I can live. I'm alive. Mm. As you said, I have a body. You know, for me, it was like, there was a validation for existence yeah. in that moment because I was pretty depressed. <laughs> yeah, you too, huh? <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's part of preparing us that it, there's a depth to what has been already channeled or dug out or whatever yeah. very big space that we, yeah. I know I needed to fill it up. I felt like this has got to be filled up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And then the work could begin the yeah. second I knew that they sent me that message. Yeah. But the stairway to heaven, I think, is. So important. And of course, everybody feels that when they sing or they dance, when they get in community and they do ritual together or whatever. It doesn't have to be specific to our, you know, our very personal experience of, in your case, I know you play an awful lot of Bach and you love it, but you also play many other things. I heard you play uh, with a guitarist at your album release party and I was just so stunned. It was like the best thing I'd heard in really a long while and so special. Thank you. I know we're kind of jumping here, but I did also want to ask you, is it hard to learn those lines that you do with 
guitar. They're so intricate, and you two perform them so perfectly. Mm. May I ask you to say his name, the guitarist? Jose Lescano. Because yeah. you guys are incredible together. Oh, thank you. Are you talking about the technical complexity? Yes, of it? I'm talking about the timing. Not yeah. just the fact that you guys played in tune, which is, I mean, I don't know if many people know how difficult it is to play number one in tune and number yeah. two to play in tune with someone else. And yeah. then the timing was impeccable. I mean, this is yeah. this is not for wimps yeah. <laughs> to yeah. use a hippie term. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's something that's, I think, one of the challenges of written down music is that it gets very complicated and very technically challenging. And one of the things that can be a positive and a negative aspect to our Western society is we want technology. Mm -hmm, <laughs> we want mm -hmm. things to be complicated and we want to build castles and complicated structures. <laughs> and how do mm -hmm. we fill it with heart and soul and mm -hmm. presence is always the question, you know, or is it an empty palace? Are you saying that the I'm thinking about particular lines when I was just blown away. I can't say what they were. I, can't, yeah. I, I couldn't sing them. But are you saying that those lines are complicated and yet the heart and soul is what you are aiming for? Yeah. But that's the content, actually. It takes discipline. Uh, you know, yeah. you spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time with it, hours and hours and hours mm -hmm. of getting the physical fluency. But part of that time is sort of weaving yourself into the music and weaving your thoughts and your heart and your life into the music so that when you get there up on stage, you're just breathing it. It's not hard anymore. If you've done your work properly, it's, right. you know, you've been there where you just have this sort of symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. with someone on stage with mm -hmm. you. Yeah. It doesn't feel hard in that moment. And it's fun that it's like thrilling for people to listen to, but, yeah. you know, and, and also that there are moments where it doesn't completely connect and that's okay. Cause it's like two birds flying side by side, you know, it's not, a, it's mostly lined up. And then there are moments where you pull apart just slightly and that freedom is also beautiful too. Well put, so, yeah. well put. Um, well, I was thrilled. I'm going to tell you that right now. It was it was incredible for me to hear. And I was thinking to myself also, do many people do this? I mean, I didn't know that you could play cello lines like that with a guitarist mm. and have it be so beautiful and seamless. And just like you said, two birds, it just took you up to that palace immediately. Yeah. You know, it's a somewhat new thing, cello and guitar. There is a, not a lot of it out there. And so I was right. It you is were special. right. It is uh -huh, special. Uh -huh. And what makes it special? A lot of times cello plays it when it's a duo. Traditionally, the music is written with piano, which is also mm -hmm. very beautiful. But what the guitar has that a pianist does is incredible flexibility. They're a lot more, they can move with more fluidity yeah. because it's, the strings are smaller. They're just, you know, yeah, the piano has a lot more strings and yeah. it's a little more, for lack of a better term, it's just a little more clunky. Yeah. Great <laughs> pianists don't make it sound clunky, but sorry, all my pianists, but you're wonderful. I love you. But um, <laughs> there is a freedom with yeah. the guitar, especially Jose. I mean, he's a real free spirit. And we, there's a spirit of improvisation whenever we go up on stage. So we're really going oh. with... Where does it take us in this moment? I mean, we have obviously the notes and the rhythms essentially in place. Mm -hmm. We try not to change the notes. It happens sometimes. Really? <laughs> I mean, you just hit the wrong note oh, or whatever, right. but... Harmony. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, there's a sense of just listening in the moment, just really being present and yeah. letting it be what it is in that moment. And it's mm -hmm. different every time. And, you know, not everybody really hears it or sees it. And I think that's always the challenge as a musician is is to deal with the reality of sometimes you're giving a gift and it doesn't get recognized and that has to be okay. That you has know? to be okay. It has That's to be right. okay because actually it's mm -hmm. it's working anyway, even yeah. if people don't know it. It's it's vibrating and giving well, them something. Here's the thing. Yeah. Music is medicine. It is powerful. As medicine. you well know. And to be able to be involved in it in the way that we are is such a gift and such an honor. I want to get back to Jose. Yes. So where does he come from? How does he fit in with, with your professional life? So Jose and I both teach at Keene State College, and he's taught there a lot longer than I have. I just started there, building up the cello program. Really, we met each other through a chamber music society. We all went out for Thai food. I remember walking in, and all the seats were taken except the ones next to him and his wife. 
And boom, there it was. You know, if I hadn't have sat there, we wouldn't have talked about how my grandparents lived in Mexico for 25 years, how I had a very strong connection with Ecuador because my neighbors were Ecuadorian. His wife is Ecuadorian. It just sort of went from there and we just started rolling. And it suddenly, it was like, where have you been? Where have you been? And I'm ready now for, Mm -hmm. you know, this new type of music, which really the guitar is also stylistically flexible. So it opens up the door to play stuff like Brazilian music or Cuban music in a way that is a little bit more authentic, I think, than the piano, because the guitar just is such a gypsy instrument. You know, it kind of, it's traveled so many places. So many places, yeah. And it has that flexibility. And and Jose has that flexibility. He can can read chords and play in a samba style, and then Mm -hmm. he can play Bach Mm -hmm. really beautifully. And, And so he's kind of, he's kind of doing what I've always wanted to do, which is be stylistically building bridges and crossing over styles. I'm just so happy that we're crossing paths, brushing wings and all that. (laughs) And I I know that we've got to go to Cuba in a minute in in our conversation, but let's go back to kids at school realize, hey, she's talented. You're (laughs) talented. And all of a sudden you're, you're getting a mirroring that's filling you up. Before there was just an outline, but I didn't know what was in it. Yeah. Now I can start. It is being filled in. You're not even doing it. It's being filled in. Yeah. And uh-huh. and that was really good because it got me through my childhood. And then at some point mm-hmm. you go, that's a trap too. Okay. Talk more about that. Because, because if you feel like maybe you're special or you're different or you're not belonging. And then mm-hmm. also there's mm-hmm. this sort of attachment to being good Mm -hmm. or being special or Mm -hmm. being seen or being recognized Mm -hmm. as your identity. Mm -hmm. And that's a trap because then you can't be free on stage to just be in the music. You're up there wanting to be seen and be, and those are traps. Those are, are ego traps. Are you talking about your teen years? Or when, when do you think that you started to enter into that? Because what, you were seven when you started to play? I started the late age of nine. <laughs> ah, that's when the case was vibrating yes, in front of you? Yes. And your parents got it for you as a gift, like maybe your birthday or Christmas? Or well, we rented for a lot of years. Ah, and okay. My first cello, I named her Athena. She was bought by a family friend who really saw my, my gift. And uh-huh. in eighth grade, she bought it for uh-huh. me. I think it was a thousand dollars thank you thank you all right so you're at the late age of nine yeah what a year that is huh things are really starting to happen in in a good and not good way i know certainly for me and you open it and there it is that that whole thing of the end pin going into the earth like a lightning rod i just love that so do you remember what it felt like the first note that you did you already know how to do anything on the cello Okay. No, I mean, I, I do remember my second thought being like, wow, this is really complicated. <laughs> like, I won. Like, man, I picked a hard one, you know, like the left hand has to do this and the yes. right hand and just yes. being like a little overwhelmed by the technical right. aspect of it. It is hard. You know, when we do our rock and roll girls camps here and uh, oftentimes I've, especially in the beginning years, I tried to teach everybody how to play guitar. But honestly, it's not for everybody. And I yeah. had I had to realize that. But People don't realize that the left hand and the right hand are doing completely different things. And that's why it's so great for um, the left brain, right brain activity. And it's so great for kids in the educational system and growing up. Oh my gosh, Um, yes. Yeah, And all that. Okay, so you realize this is hard. So (laughs) who helped you out from that point on? Was there a teacher around or...? You know, I had several teachers. Um, my first teacher was just really sweet and just made me feel really like kind of happy and at home with the cello. And she was very, um, she didn't rush me or anything, okay. but I got a little impatient. I was Did sort you? of like, I was sort of like, I'm better than this. Come on, push me, push me. You wanted to you know? fly. Yeah. And then I got this teacher, Justin Kagan, who really recognized, he was the first person who really made me feel like maybe I really did have something going on. And he really was a wonderful teacher and just mostly because he just got me. He just really okay. understood where I was coming from. And that inspired me to practice more and get better. And <laughs> I've heard you say something like, let me synthesize it. Your parents were the hippies and you rebelled by going into Bach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and so there you were in your room or wherever, just <laughs> sawing away on your yeah. Bach. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, because... 
Because, you know, hippies can be a little loosey-goosey and, you know, I love it. Break down those boundaries and all that. Yeah. But I wanted structure, you know, uh-huh. I wanted to feel like there was some order to the world. I mean, when you've you've been fragmented to that point mm-hmm. at such a young mm-hmm. age where you don't know that you can even live, you know, you don't, right. you can't even trust your body to be yeah. okay. Um, you want structure. So the intricacy of Bach really entered your whole system. Yeah. Did you know that it was that intricate at the time when you were? Because that's tough stuff to master, which you have done. I feel like I always got Bach. It never felt complicated to me. There's sort of a rational, like, Mm -hmm. trueness to it that just made sense from the very beginning. And yeah, I mean, I had great teachers who kind of pointed out stuff, but it was always very intuitive for me. I always felt like Bach was made total sense. So you never got tired of it. It was always entering a new doorway. And do I have that right? Yeah, you I'm do. Just... I never thought about that. But yeah. that's no, I've never been tired of Bach. Bach is still just my happy place. <laughs> it really is. Oh, I just Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. It's just I feel like Bach whatever is wrong with the world, Bach will heal. <laughs> Okay, I like that. Well, we were talking about the sacred masculine earlier, and I yeah. i got to say, I don't remember ever hearing that phrase before. Mm. So for you, where does that come from? My own knowing. I, I mean, I'm sure people have talked about it before, but for me, it's, if I think about what the masculine is on a on a very meta level, and sorry if I get too esoteric here, but... I feel get like, esoteric away. <laughs> I feel like the the masculine in in its in its light form is mm-hmm. in its positive form is that which supports the feminine that that creates a space for the feminine energy to come through the feminine being the goddess or or the mystery or the life that fills all things and the masculine is is those structures that that invites that in best mm-hmm. and so the sacred masculine to me is is a structure that is in support of the spirit, the soul, the life. And that can be, uh, that can be Bach. That can be the notes of Bach or mm. that can be uh, our constitution, you know? <laughs> and maybe yeah. even these structures, we might shift them a little here and there to be ever more in support. So it's not that they're, they're set in stone, you yeah. know? I think you said earlier the sacred masculine creating to to please yeah <laughs> something like that and that that makes a lot of in sense service to, me. to in service yes yes and you know we're all i don't think of it as a gender we're all I think yeah we're all exactly. in, in an ideal world we have both of those in yes. us and so you could think of the masculine also being sort of the brain or the rational and is is our brain working towards embodying our biggest vision or our greatest contribution so, you know, when I get up in the morning and I sit down and I pick up my cello, is my brain going, you suck, you know, <laughs> like you'll never get this right? Or is my brain saying, let's do that again. Let's see what, what, what wasn't right. How can we make it right? How can we make it even more beautiful and in service to the music? The yeah. meta meditation. <laughs> <laughs> let's start our days with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because in our camps with the young girls who come in, I would say more starting with the teen years, mm-hmm. the preteen, I always love the idea of doing preteen because to me, that's the age of magical thinking. That's mm-hmm. the time of magical thinking from like yeah. five on. Mm-hmm. I have lots of nieces and nephews and, and I, I love that magical thinking time. But there's that point where they start to come in and they think everything they do sucks. Mm-hmm. When they look in the mirror, it sucks, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And there seems to be that, huh. uh, for some reason, we need to do that, I guess. But that's why I said meta meditation, because you're saying, well, let's do that again. What was it about that that, well, I'm going to say it didn't suck? Because I kind of banned them from saying that. But not in a bad way. It's a, by mid-camp, we're all laughing because we catch each other saying mm. those kind of things where we're putting ourselves down. But if you don't catch that, at some point, then you're spending the rest of your life believing that thought. And it is just a thought. Yeah, it is is just a thought. (laughs) And there's lots of ways to caress that thought. And okay, what was it that wasn't right about that? And let's do the next thing, which is all right. Yeah, let's try it. Yeah. And it's, it always boils down to light and love, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It boils down to shining a light, just having the awareness of that. Well, I mean, there's a comfort in knowing that thought because there's always the next moment yes 
So it just opens you up to the next moment, the possibility, because nothing is set in stone as we know. Yeah. Okay, you're not satisfied. Oh, there you go. What are you not there satisfied you right. about? What is not yeah. speaking to you? What is what mm-hmm. is not channeling your intentions? Mm-hmm. And then you can build it into something productive. I like to say retraining my my inner trainer, you know, <sighs> so that she's going, instead of cracking the whip and more push-ups, more push-ups, she's going, she's more of a Zen master going, take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Can you sink deeper into that stretch? Just have an awareness. Where's your finger? Where's it out of? Just awareness. And then it transforms into just awareness. And then, and then the body, you know, the body's slow. It's, we just have to be so patient with our bodies because it's so true. they just take time. Yeah, they yeah. just, we have to just repeat. Yeah. And that repetition can be kind of like a mantra or a, a sense of just... To just, me, it's sort of it a salvation. good, you yeah, know? It can yeah. feel good. Just let's do it again right, and right. again and again and again until it's just, then we've woven ourselves into you the music. You become the key. Yeah. Because that keyhole is always there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, I like that. That was good. Yeah, that was good. You you just, boom, you just, <laughs> you just connected. Because it is physical like that. It's it, spiritual, but it's also physical. It has to be physical. And I think that was my biggest lesson from a very young age. You can't just go back to the beautiful place like mm-hmm. you have to bring the beautiful place here girl put those feet on the ground mm-hmm. pick up that cello and suck it up like, <laughs> you know like you're here people love you learn to love learn yeah. to play music just yeah. get on right, with your right, life right. you know and that's well, still my lesson all the time oh, like absolutely you know i have to learn it every day do you remember the first moment that you realize hey i'm flying i'm flying flying yes I mean, it's got to be in that somewhere between nine and let me make a guess, 16. That's a great question. So my first experience of flying was not with cello, it was with acting. Um, Oh, nice. While I was singing Papageno, it was with music, but it was with not a very good voice, but it didn't matter in this community. I was singing Papageno from the magic flute of Mozart. And when I got on stage, it was pure magic. I just felt the energy of the yeah. audience. I was the character. I wasn't Rebecca anymore. Mm. And it just, it was like the most amazing high. I was just, I was addicted. Oh my God. I was like, You're always trying to go to that first high, aren't you? Yes. I was like, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, give yeah. me more of this stuff. Give me more. Yeah. I can't deny that afterwards, the literally hundreds of people coming up and being like, oh my God, that was incredible. You know, and it was like an ego boost, but it was also like, wow, I just changed all these people's experience in this moment. That's incredible. Very powerful. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a gift, you know? So as you're learning the cello and you're learning You Can Fly, I know that you're loving Bach and you're up in your room <laughs> or down in the basement or whatever. Yeah. What was the repertoire that spoke to you the most that you were learning in, in your early years that, that mm. really zinged you, inspired you? That Brahms. Oh, really? Yeah, Brahms. Brahms, because he was so sensuous and emotional. He is so sensuous oh. and emotional. And it was, it, it just, it had this sort of depth and, and warmth and inviting mm-hmm. in that I, I just loved Brahms. I remember playing his trio, his clarinet trio, my, my freshman year of oh, college. Oh, that sounds so nice, clarinet trio. Oh my God. It was one of the last things oh. Brahms wrote. And um, really? these two amazing musicians who are still out there making music. And the three of us came together and it was, it was, it was an incredible camaraderie. And the music was so beautiful. I just was, it, it was unbelievable. And so it was this experience of community, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know that much about Brahms, but hearing you speak about him and that piece, I must go listen. Yeah, I mean, please absolutely. do. Yeah. Yeah. Opus, is it 121? It's one of the last things he wrote. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, Mozart and Brahms both turned to clarinet in their late works, or they both turned to clarinet. Yeah, it was, was it clarinet in the lower register? It, it there are different sizes and different okay. ranges, mm-hmm. but I don't know if there's any any meaning behind that. But it's just an interesting. Well, there's fact. something about clarinet when it's it's played with that warmth mm-hmm. that I feel like it's it's like a free ticket to something sublime. Yeah, I love yeah, and and yeah. the clarinetist I worked with, his name was Jeremy, and he was incredible, and we just found a world there together in Brahms that was so beautiful. Well, that's so awesome to know. Yeah. I, I'm inspired just 
hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't recommend you know. Rob's enough. So your repertoire until what age? I mean, you went to college, you have at least a doctorate. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. not a small thing. Yeah. I'm sure there are a lot of other things you did. Yeah. Accomplishments, do you mind talking about that, kind of listing it? So um, my undergrad was from Oberlin. I, I kind of got there through the side door. I went there actually for anthropology and on a whim. Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of, I fought the music thing a little bit. Really? I did. Okay, let's talk about that a little yeah. bit more. Why and how? I mean, how does that happen? Well, part of it happens, oh God, you know, here we get into the patriarchy. Okay, <laughs> let's know, do sorry, it. I'm another ready. big topic. But... Oh yeah, because I'm assuming you didn't play very many women's compositions. Uh, no, okay, no. So, and then also yeah. there's, all my teachers were men mainly, yes. and, and I'm there. Um, my college teacher was wonderful, but when I told him I wanted to go into music, he said, oh, yeah, no, you're not good enough. <gasps> yeah, he did. Oberlin? No, in high school. In high school, okay. And he said, well, you know, you could audition, but, you know. Oh, my. And oh, I was like. Oh, I just want to shake him. I was crushed. I was so crushed. I was like, he doesn't are. see me. He doesn't see, see me. He doesn't right. see me. Oh, I can just see the look on your face oh, as you're just staring so back crushed. at him. Yeah, yeah, okay. I was so crushed. Yeah, I was so crushed. And I was like, I'll show him. You know? That's <laughs> you know? right. And I got in everywhere I applied. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and where was he? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think probably what was going on for him in retrospect. And we've had conversations since. I sort of okay. said, hey, hey, guess, yeah, yeah, guess what guess you what? said to me. Uh -huh. And he sort of, he sort of like, oh, well, I'm, you know, his mm -hmm. own version of an apology, but. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All women know that. Okay. <laughs> I think really it was more about him and, yes. you know, just right. maybe he didn't end up where he wanted to. And maybe yeah. his yeah. career wasn't what he thought it would be. And he wanted to spare me the pain mm -hmm. because okay. the truth is the music world is really yeah. hard. Yeah. It is really hard. The truth is. Especially in the classical music world, yeah, I would take it. Yeah, extremely competitive. So he was probably trying to like anything else he wanted yeah. to do. And so <laughs> That's I, a good spin. I like yeah, that. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, I'll, get, I'll, 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 I'll throw him a bone. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> so I went to Ithaca first and then Ithaca was kind of too easy for me mm. academically. Mm. And I, I had this wonderful anthropology course and I just, you know, I was kind of good at everything. I won't be modest. I was, you know, pretty smart cookie and I just loved mm -hmm. kind of everything. And, and I'm thinking you at six crying and just, you know, night terrors. And then you're like, you're good at everything. As it, it turns out. I yeah, love it. I yeah, love it. Yeah. Well, I have very smart parents and, it, you know, good genes. <laughs> okay. And so it all kind of rubbed off. Excellent. So I transferred to Oberlin for anthropology and... Oh God. I just thought, you know, I, cultural anthropology, like the human being, I want to study, you know, I want to understand. And, Margaret and on Mead a, with a cello. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and on a whim, I went and played for the cello professor in the conservatory. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, the sound that you're making, mm. you have to be in my studio. So it was like something mm. about the, my sound. He was just like, uh, oh, yes, she's, she's, yes. She's, she's magical. You know, like yeah. he saw it. And then he spent the whole next year being angry at me for not being a music major <laughs> and just being, what? What are you doing? What are you doing? You're throwing your life away. What are you doing? And I tortured that poor man because I played hard to get. I just really oh. did. I think it tortured him. So you've got bookends here. You've got high school, the guy going, eh, you're not good enough. And yeah. I would say within two years or something, yeah. you have this yeah. professor going, I mean, what? Yeah. Wait, let's get going. Here. And it gets worse. I dropped out of Oberlin. <laughs> <laughs> because what? What? What's I know. Happening? What does she need? What does this girl right. need? I dropped out of Oberlin because I thought, you're going to laugh really hard now, I thought that my best contribution to the world would be to be a farmer. <laughs> so you're back with your hippie parents. Yes. You're back with that, I don't know, yeah. that construct. Yes, yes. And, and oh, my friends my who are goodness. like back to landers. And oh. I just thought, you know, the best contribution I can do is just take care of one piece of earth and be a farmer. And I was a terrible farmer. I worked on a farm in New York. I worked on a farm in Ireland, actually. Oh and then I worked on a farm in Idaho. And, and my farmer friends were really patient with me, you know. I'd like get up in the morning and, and weed with them. And then I'd go, go back in the house and practice the cello while they continued weeding and... And I think it was at that point oh I had a my. farmer boyfriend who was really lovely. And I, uh -huh. I think I did need to get in touch with the earth. I did need to uh -huh. kind of understand there about go. being right. embodied. Right. And so when I went back to over, the interesting thing is it was a, a shaman in the square of Mexico who got me back to playing music. I'm, oh, this I got to hear. This, <laughs> this I've got is, to hear. It's definitely a good story. Let's I was, go. Uh, yeah. So... <laughs> 
you know, I'm, I'm in New York and it's January and my friends and I are like, well, let's get the hell out of here. And so we just, we, we just go to Mexico for like seven weeks and travel around living on $5 oh a day and all of that. And I find myself mm-hmm. after about five or six of those weeks in the square of Mexico City, just feeling utterly lost. Like, I, I don't know who I am, what my purpose is. I don't, you know, what the heck. And I'm standing there and I'm going, just send me a sign, like just something, anything. Let me know you're out there, like that there's some form or shape to this life. And literally, it was so instantaneous. I thought, God, this has got to be like one of God's interns because it was a little too obvious. Like, I was oh. like, come on now. Like, that's interns. You know, like this was a little bit of a cheap job because it was wow. so obvious. No, I mean, it was beautiful too. So as I'm standing there in this crowded square, you have this beautiful cathedral, this big Catholic cathedral, which I'd gone inside and I felt nothing. So I left. And then you have these hordes of people. And then you have these chicles, these little barefoot Mayan children, all the poverty. And then you have these shamans or, you know, medicine people, whatever they are. And there was this tall, beautiful woman who must have been my age, the age that I'm now in her 40s. Then she was in her 40s and I was in my 20s, standing there, long, beautiful hair. And she was just wrapping up for the day, blowing her conch shell to the four directions. And she had these three beautiful stalks of white flowers. I was quite a ways from her, but I was watching from a distance and taking in her regal beauty and all of that sort of embodiment of soul and just, oh God, she was blessing people, but she was wrapping up for the day. And in the midst of that, this crazy man comes like stumbling through the crowd. I mean, I don't know if he was drunk or crazy or or mentally ill or what, you know, I don't know what was going on with him, but people were spreading away from him. They were, they were scared. He was groaning. He was drooling. He was half bent over and he goes up to her and he's sort of grabbing at her, and she's so poised, and she takes a stalk of flowers. Mm. She places it in his hands and looks into his eyes, and there's this pause in his craziness. And then he takes the flowers and starts slamming them on the, on the cobblestones, and I go, oh, mm. gosh, what a, what a waste of a gift. And I look at her, and she's this sort of embodiment. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm standing between those two. I could waste my gift or I could be this embodiment of soul. And I, Mm. damn it, I got to pick. I got to really pick. I got to choose. I got to will myself into this path. Mm. And in the midst of that thought, she's walking through the crowds with the second stalk of flowers. Oh, no. I know. And she stands right in front of me. (laughs) And she puts it in my hand. Yes. It is really like a movie. She puts it in my hands and she looks me in the eye and says something in my, and I don't know what the heck it was. Wow. And and then she walks away. Wow. I said, okay, I got it. I'm going back to Oberlin. I'm going to work on this cello thing. I got it. I got it. I she got speaks it. to you in Mayan and, <laughs> yeah. and you think, Oberlin, I'm yeah. going back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew. I knew what it was and I was fighting it and running from it. And I just said, thank you. And I just held that stalk of flowers like, oh my God, this isn't like, this isn't a fucking about me. Sorry, but this isn't about me. This is, I was given this flower. It's mine to care for. I got to be that sacred masculine. I got to work my butt off and learn how to play. And it is hard. And it is going to take me hours and years and centuries. And mm-hmm. um, But it's my job. It's what I need to do. Right. And there's no See, other... I love it. First, you know, it's your gift. And then you realize it's your job. Yes. That's yeah. eons of steps right yes. there. Yes. That's fabulous. Yes. So I did. I went oh, back so to yeah. Oberlin uh-huh. and... I had a different teacher. I think the other one had had enough of me. <laughs> and this teacher was great. He had amazing technique. He showed me all the, all the things, especially bow. A lot of people don't have a great bow arm. He really showed me incredible bow arm stuff. And I'm so grateful for that. And he was kind of a, a Looney Tunes, but Andor Toth, he was amazing. And then um, he helped me connect with Rhonda Ryder. She was my first female teacher in college in Boston Conservatory. You transfer or you... No, no, I graduated from Oberlin. And so then it was Boston um, Conservatory for a year. And then Boston University was the the place. Why? Why was Boston University? Because they had a lot of money. Because none of this... My parents were wonderful human Uh beings, but they didn't... I was kind of putting myself through with scholarships. and, and, And the pressure was there. It was like I had to be straight A student because I had... A merit-based scholarship at Oberlin. I had almost okay. full scholarship at Oberlin, and then 
Boston University. I had the Dean Scholar Award. Okay. And by the time I was in my doctorate, it was free. So you accelerated the whole thing. You're on the dean's list. You're getting yeah. these scholarships. And now you're at Boston University. Yeah. They have the money and they have the program. Yeah. And I had a wonderful teacher there, Michael Reynolds, who really, he advocated for me too. He really saw my gift. He really saw what I could do. And he sent me through the paces. He sent me through all the proper etudes. And, mm-hmm. you know, he knew how to train and he did it really lovingly. What are the proper? etudes the popper so the popper etudes are sort of like the bible if you will okay. of cello playing and they just they're kind of torturous but they teach you all the left hand techniques and the bow techniques there's also piatti 12 caprices they're sort of standard they just give you all the skills that you need it's a little bit like acrobatic so it's a little bit musically you know is this written by different people through no, so it's popper is he's the composer see how i, I don't know no, anything. it's yeah. fine it's fine mm-hmm. and uh so you did the etudes they did all the etudes wow, i did all slammed it. I slammed them. Yeah. I remember when I got to the last one, I said, can I throw this across the room? And he said, you can, you can burn it. You can throw it out the window. How long did that take to get through the etudes? I mean, it took like four years. I mean, they're, they're really tough. You know, I read Casal's book. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I, I, I love to read autobiographies, especially about anybody in the arts. His thing of getting up and then playing for hours and just re getting into it. What about the just the the posture of playing hmm. cello is that hard on the body actually no it's very comfortable i mean you have to have back strength i was again very grateful for my teachers who taught me extremely ergonomic healthy technique and not everybody is taught that and it's all about efficiency of motion it's all about using the body in the way that the joints naturally align mm-hmm. it's all about playing from all of your body and not just your fingers about keeping things lined up so that the blood's flowing and the nerves are not trapped and it's all i mean on the face of it that just sounds so wise it seems like it should be really obvious but it's not all teachers teach that way and i'm very with my students of course I like to give them a lot of interpretational freedom. Mm-hmm. I'm really a very Socratic method kind of teacher. I mm. like to really ask them to really listen and yeah. teach themselves. But when it comes to technique, I'm pretty serious about preventing injury because we do spend so much time and we can really injure our bodies if we're not careful. It's quicker a lot of times for women to get like, although I have to get women to connect to their power and not be afraid to have a big, big sound and really be powerful. There you go. But it's harder to get a man to unlearn the muscling and then learn to be powerful. Mm-hmm. So there's like an unlearning that has to happen first with them. Whereas for women, it's just a learning, it feels. it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it is also an unlearning, but it's just a be you but plus. Whereas be the men... able to access that, yeah, that part of the Connect puzzle. to your power. Uh-huh. And I can be a role model for them. And so that's... That's nice. So for the men, it's there's a little bit more of a like, um, what does it feel like to use less effort? To have oh. this, have this. Mm. And let me tell you, if you want to play an hour and a half concert, if you're banging your head and you're banging the cello, you're going to be exhausted yeah, right. and it's going to be fine until you're about 50 mm-hmm. and then you're going to hurt and then you're going to wish you'd listen to me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, they, some, uh, some of them do and some of them don't. Yeah. But a lot of the times they hear it, they hear it in the sound. And I said, just listen to the sound. So that's the minus part of conquering. You're just yeah. going to tie yourself out. Yeah. And besides what is defined conquering an instrument or anything. Yeah. And that's not the same. Mm-hmm. Mastery is freedom. Yeah. Mastery oh. and conquering, not the same thing. Ooh. Not the same thing. There we get to another divine agent. I love your story of the Mayan woman. And you said, well, maybe she was just you didn't say she, but one of God's interns yeah, just yeah. gave you the right thing. I just yeah. love that. If that were an intern. It's mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. So technique. Yes. Do you work still? I mean, assuming that you worked a lot with a metronome, do you still work with a metronome? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So that's a must. Yeah. Um, it Because I try to tell our girls that at oh, camp, yeah. you know, a lot of them don't even realize how important it is. Yeah. I always say, where's the one? But metronome. Like how you find the spaces in between is where it's at. Well, and I think rhythmic training for me with my students ranges. Sometimes it's about feeling it in the body, Mm -hmm. like really internalizing the rhythm. And they're very different tools. And the metronome's more about really recognizing where you're not rhythmic. Uh Uh-huh. So it's, well, a, it's an awareness because, tool. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, because I've recorded with a lot of people in the studio and a lot of times you use a metronome and it's it's fascinating how even when you think you're getting off, mm-hmm. when you take the metronome away, it sounds fine. Right. There's kind of a finite way of trying to approach 
perfection. Yeah. It's not going to work really ultimately. And I think rhythmically speaking, the music that you tend to do versus what I do, mm-hmm. yours is a little bit more strict rhythmically, actually. Really? Yeah. Okay. There, there's a little, because we don't have a repeated beat I see. often. Okay. And we don't often have... The divine ostinato. <laughs> the divine ostinato. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So classical music tends to be a little bit more rhythmically, what's the word? Dynamic. It changes. Okay. It's like now we're using this rhythm and now this, and now we almost don't have rhythm. It's more horizontal in some ways. It moves oh. more that way, whereas a lot of, I think, rock music is more vertical. It's not quite as structured that way. Yeah, I was just thinking when you said that rock music, I think a lot of times if you're going to say vertical, it's in being able to control dynamics, especially, let's say, with guitar. Yeah. Or mixing in the loudness and, and finding a way to actually have a conversation because everyone tends to be so loud. I mean, how do you yeah. have that conversation? Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I remember once I was in the studio with a great producer engineer, Roma Barron, and she just turned at me at one point and said, you know, everybody can't be the loudest. And that's, I experience that sometimes Mm -hmm. in chamber music where it's like everybody just keeps upping the ante and it's like, ah, you know, like, come on, (laughs) we're all shouting at each other, you know. Right. Um, Well, you know, the way that you described playing a couple of minutes ago made me think a lot about or instantly put me into Tai Chi. Mm, yeah. Because, you know, the soft power thing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I had a great teacher. I only did it for about a year and then I had to go on the road. But when he demonstrate he didn't just say it, he demonstrated sinking down mm. sinking and then you don't have to try to try to reach you yeah. just turn your torso right and everything can relax and follow yeah and there's your power absolutely yeah if you're following the laws of physics the physics mm-hmm. will work for you yeah you're sort of in the flow of the physics and it's incredible yeah it's it's a pretty amazing and it's powerful to know that. And then yeah. when you start experiencing, I mean, at some point in performing, I realized I wasn't really trying to be loud or trying to be whatever. It was just flinging itself out hmm. from somewhere in the center. Like just you, yeah. you take a rubber band and, you know, you pull it back a little bit, bang, out, yeah, out it goes. Great. Yeah, I love the visceral quality of oh. your plane. It's like, it like thrills you to the toes. It's yes. just like, yes. yeah, it's, it's very, very... Um, yeah, and I visceral. remember one technical, you know, I used to have to just ask people to show me things because I couldn't go to school for what I wanted to learn, right. especially being a girl, you know. Right. So when we first got to L.A., this would be around 69, I saw somebody play at a club somewhere and I would just haunt the clubs and glom on to someone who was. Yeah. And so I got this guy to show me some stuff and he was so kind and he showed me how in getting vibrato on an electric guitar. It's mm. all in the wrist. A lot of people don't know that, so they're trying to jerk their whole arm off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's such a waste of time. I know. That thing about it coming from the wrist, then you get the ability to pull an electric guitar string, which is not easy. Yeah. It's very physical, and by the way, it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> I know that I've asked you about this before, and it's just so fascinating to talk about, because your technique around being in tune everywhere where you play mm. up the neck and everything is mm. perfectly in tune and you know because i'm deaf in one ear i hear pitch mm. keenly mm. i can't hear stereo stereo is a concept to me yeah. but pitch is wow. uh, dead serious well that's good to hear <laughs> i work yeah. at it yeah and you know the physicality of how you got to do that on the cello about the intonation all that kind of stuff i'm assuming yeah. that you're working on that all the time yeah, with the your time. cello all the time yeah you know? intonation one can that never take tough. for granted yeah it's sometimes i get up in the morning i go really <laughs> 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 really i have to do this again there's some days when i just and then that's when i take a break and i take a hike and i wanted to say something oh about teaching about those teachers show up don't they when you need them they and really do and i'm envious of your Unformal education because the formalism, the institution of classical music, the history, it can bear down on you in a way that we have to deinstitutionalize ourselves okay. for a long time to be free because it is so overbearing. It is such a tradition. It sounds to me like you really kind of from the beginning, you did it. You were free 
from that kind of sense. But of, I also needed to find these little life rafts or pieces of wood floating in the ocean that I could hold on yeah. to to survive to the yeah. next whatever because. Yeah. I needed technique also. Yes. And yes. the ports to get the technique yeah. or even hints were far, pretty long periods. I mean, the first thing I, I did actually was watch the Ed Sullivan show mm. to see, to just see what, how were they making those chords? Yeah. How were they moving? I had no idea. Yeah. Because I mean, ukulele, acoustic yeah. guitar. What? What are yeah. you, like you said, really? Yeah, I mean, there are moments when I'm on stage and I'm like, this is really kind of magic. I can't yeah. believe I'm doing, you know, you can't think that way because then you're like, well, and then it falls apart, you know, because you're like, but I am doing it and they're all, and they're all watching me, you yeah, know, like, right, right. like, where's my safety net? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something that I confront my life a lot going up on stage is that that feeling of being watched. And I have to really let that go. This is not about you, my dear. This is about the music and can you be present to that? And that's... Well, so you can play by yourself. You play with ensembles. You play with orchestras. Yeah. What's the largest group of people? I mean, I would assume that's the largest. What's what, what's the size? Well, I mean, orchestras are huge. They're like so 80, 100 one? people. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a cool experience. Oh yeah. You're gosh. just lost in the sound. That has got to be power. Yeah. It hits loud. Talk about going deaf. Oh my <laughs> you know, gosh. People, a lot of classical musicians who are playing orchestras, they can go deaf from just the sheer volume yeah. of sound on a constant basis. And that was not my path. I didn't want to be an orchestral Well, you know, musician. the threshold of pain is 120 dB. And that is described in the textbooks <laughs> as, as an orchestra. <laughs> yes. The yeah. loudest point of an orchestra or if you're standing by a jet engine. Oh, wow. <laughs> Those are the two examples <laughs> well, I put. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always, I mean, I say this at every camp. I'm like, how come no one has named their band Threshold of Pain? <laughs> oh, my God. That is a great name. <laughs> I know. And now I'm just going to well, give it to everyone. Well, now it's out there. Now it's out there. Someone's going to find it. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So oh, this is so fascinating. I'm just going to have to jump to Cuba. Yes, because, please. Yes, you were there last year? 2017? Yes, 2017, March. And I'm sure there's just so much. How do you approach even going to Cuba? You right. know, how does that even happen? Well, Jose, of course, was talking about having gone there, and um, he was born there. Uh, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, okay. he was born there, and I think they moved when he was five to Miami. So he's always had that connection. When I started working with him, I got introduced to his compositions, which have Cuban influence and just generally a lot of different influences. Are we even allowed to go to Cuba? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. These are the, the, well, the, the I mean, questions. The, the crazy thing is it, we were just barely allowed. And one of my main intentions was to bring a cello, was to, to gift a cello mm. to the Cuban cellist. And mm. 18 months before I went to Cuba, I'd found out it, through the process of fundraising, I fundraised for the trip, I discovered that 18 months ago, it would have been illegal for me to gift a cello. Can you imagine that? Really? Yes. On what basis illegal? I, stupid sanctions. The U.S. feeling like somehow this would be aiding and abetting the government by bringing a freaking musical mm. instrument. Can you imagine? Mm. And Obama, he opened that up, so it became legal. But it was one of these things then, of course, then there's the Cuban side, which when I traveled there, I didn't tell them it was a cello to be donated because they would have taken it. And so I guess that's the reality is at the border, I had fellow musicians who traveled there earlier who luckily gave me intel on this. They almost had the instruments they were bringing to donate confiscated and they would have never seen them again. And fat cats basically yes. getting richer and richer and the people getting poorer and poorer. So luckily our government at the time was more open to building bridges with Cuba. And so part of it was bringing a cello and part of it was just, let's connect on a musical level, even though our governments are whatever they're doing. Let's just set that aside and be people together and play music. That's what this world really needs. So describe to me the first moment that you got that I'm in Cuba. What, is, what does that feel like? <laughs> the first moment I got, this old car pulls up to drive us to the hotel and it looks amazing. On the outside, you get inside and the leather's falling off and they can't open right. the window because the handle comes off in my oh, hand. And, my. And this is the cellist who's running the festival. This is his dad's car. They picked me up. But probably before that actually was when he hugs me. The cellist, fellow cellist, just gives me this hug that is like the warmest thing. Mm -hmm. It's just the most welcoming feeling mm -hmm. of, of, of embrace. 
I thought, oh my God, I'm going to love it here. Like these people are awesome. They've got it. They really understand about connection and community. And, and musically, how was the connection? Where, where did you go? Who, who did you play with? Who did you teach? So it was the Cello Festival of Havana and Cello students... Just hearing that is fantastic. I know, right? It, students came from all over Cuba. And I didn't know this, but Cuba, it's like going to Michigan from here. It's really a big country. So these students came, it was all the best and brightest in Cuba. And it was a combination of concerts. So I got to hear them play and then master classes. And it was so sweet. I gave a master class and it was... It was supposed to be four hours long and just six students, and they just kept coming and coming, and I couldn't resist, you know. They were so eager for information and so wanting to soak up and playing on the most sad, beat-up instruments. It just broke my heart, and they were so good, too. I was just blown away by the skill there uh, and the heart. Skill and heart combined, just a powerful package. And I wanted to take them all back with me. I wanted them to come to Keene State College and study with me, but we don't have scholarships and I need to work on that, I think. I need to work on something to get these talented students to the States. Because what is so interesting to think, I, I hate to say this really or admit this, that yeah. I never thought of Cuba and cellos in the yeah. same breath, so to speak. I mean, how... So the access, the one thing you can really credit the government with is access to education and healthcare. So music and is so music, part of healthcare. So when, when you have access to education and mm -hmm. you're not cutting out a huge portion of the population, as yeah. we do here, I'm sad to say, we're very divided and very racially segregated still. Yeah. And when you have that kind of access, then you spread a whole net over the population and the most talented can step forward. And it was all shades of colors. And they definitely enjoy it. Oh my God, they loved it. And it was such a beautiful healing. It was something really beautiful about watching an Afro-Cuban girl play Bach with oh. abandon. I mean, it just it just gave me shivers oh, to the stop toes. stop right there. Let me just conjure that image. That's, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I, I came home it. and I was just heartbroken. I just thought, oh my God, we don't have music. I mean, people are doing yeah. good things in the inner cities and they're doing their mm -hmm. best and we're working on it. But our public school system is, yeah. so it needs some real With help. respect to music, it's pretty broken. Yeah, it's pretty broken. Uh -huh. And they just live and breathe music there on such a deep level. And So you must have been in heaven. I was in heaven. I felt like this is where I belong. This is what I should be doing with my life. And it did take me a great effort to be there because I did need to fundraise to buy that instrument, to buy the tickets. Because the last thing I wanted to do was ask the Cuban people to try to pay me. <laughs> that was not going to happen. Some of them make $5 a month. I kid you not. I mean, it is insane mm. to imagine the kind of poverty. And they're some of the most resilient powerful, soulful, incredible people I've ever met in my life. And they do what they do too that's important. Let's not forget this is they don't just play Bach. They also play a lot of Latin American composers that really mix the sort of African influence, the Spanish influence from the And this is that, written down? It's written down. So we might quote unquote call it classical music because we're reading off of oh, a page. Yeah. But what it's doing is it's it's really integrating all of these cultures and we need more of that in classical music because mm -hmm. we can tend to, I love Bach and I love Brahms, I love all these guys, but we do mean to have music that also represents everybody. And so it's, it's a construct, but it's also important to recognize that we need to see ourselves and the people mm -hmm. who are writing the music and playing the music as women, as people of color, to feel represented in order to be empowered to take our place in yeah. that world. Because I think the more the merrier. And again, the broad net, the best can step forward. And in the best, they look different. We don't all look the same. We're looking for something that always looks the same. We're going to be missing <laughs> the real talent out there. So you're saying they, they get funky with the cello down there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They <laughs> oh, get I really funky. And oh. they really taught me a lot. I was learning ah. as much as they were. I was... Okay. I was like, oh my God, li listen to that. Wow, I'm going to learn from this and I've got more to learn and I'm going to keep playing with Jose and I'm going to keep stretching my boundaries to experience some of those polyrhythms that you get in African yeah. music. And what does it feel like to really improvise? I'm not one of those people who believes in a hierarchy of musics. Mm -hmm. I think every music has its contribution. And for me, it's that combination that is so sexy. Think about it. Spanish music, for example, you've got the Moroccan influence and you've got a lot mm -hmm. of the gypsy kind of the Romani influence mm -hmm. and you've got classical music coming from Paris and France and it's just so good. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about Cuba being, let's say, isolated all these years. Yeah. They're an island. Yeah. So they're developing within the country the new compositions or the new approach 
Am yeah. I right about that? We could look at it that way, but we could also look at we're isolated from Cuba. Yeah. That actually right. really, they're pretty connected to Latin America. They're pretty connected to Europe. Mm-hmm. It's really just us who's deprived. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I look at it more like, what if we missed? What are we missing here? We have to be advocates and yeah. fundraisers and yeah, all of those right. other things. The sacred masculine, again, mm-hmm. creating the structure and the opportunity for these things to happen. So what is the sacred feminine, if we're going to put that into yeah. the hopper and talking about yeah. when you reference the sacred yeah. masculine, what is the sacred feminine if you were to talk about the Cuban music and how we need to be advocates and all that? Or is that yeah. just really obvious? Even asking this question, I'm thinking, do I even need to ask this? Yeah, I think you know that <laughs> so well. I feel like it's what What could I possibly teach you? <laughs> So you know, you know what the sacred feminine is. And the thing about the sacred feminine is it's beyond words, right? Mm -hmm. We can almost not find language for it. And yet we always try, we always try to embody it. And yet it's infinite. It's a wonderful basket. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's it's a magical basket. Yes, it is. It is that which connects all of us. It is that which flows through all things. I think of the feminine really as God, actually. I think of it really Mm -hmm. as the energy that is in all things and that creates all things and takes all things. Mm -hmm. And that to me is goddess or the sacred feminine. Mm -hmm. 